So I'm going to read John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Uh, You're going to pray for me, and uh, then we're going to hear from the Lord. John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, would you hear the word of God? It says, truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your kindness. Uh, We thank you that already we, I know I have been very encouraged by the gathering of your saints, of your people today. So would you help us now as we sit under the authority of your word Uh, Would you use this text to change us, to transform us? Would everyone who walked in here today leave different than they came in? So we ask, Father, what we know not, you would teach us. What we are not, you would make us. And what we have not, you would give us by your grace and for your glory in Christ's name. God's people said, amen, amen. So there's a theological term in Christianity It's called the already and the not yet. You may have heard this before. The already and the not yet describes what our Lord has declared is already a reality. So things that have already happened. And then what has not yet been revealed. In the already, many of God's promises given to his people in the Old Testament have already happened. They've already come to pass. Uh, Clearly, the most obvious and most important of these promises finds its fulfillment in the arrival of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, The promises given in the garden after the fall, the promises given to Abraham, to David, uh, Israel even as a people, then since the beginning of time has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to send a Messiah, and it's going to come. He's he's going to redeem. He's going to save. He's going to restore. And that's the message of the gospel, right? That there there is a Savior. He's arrived. He's here. He has arrived. He's done what God's word tells us he will do. He lived a perfect life, but he dies a sinner's death. Uh, he pays the penalty for humanity's sin. I mean, this has happened. It's a reality. It is something that has taken place. He's absorbed the wrath that we deserve. But what happens? He doesn't stay dead. He's resurrected. He ascends to heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will return to what? To redeem and take his people, restore us fully, holy, at the proper time. See, all this has happened. This is a reality that we live in. 
This is the already of our salvation. It's the already of the promises of God. But we live in an age where everything has not been revealed to us. There are eschatological, that's just a fancy word for the study of the end times, promises that have not yet come to pass. There are things that will happen, that will happen later, that we're told of, that have not already taken place, uh, such as when Christ will return. Many people have tried to guess and tried to predict and say, oh, it's, it's coming. It's going to be whatever date they'll throw out this year, right? But we don't know. We don't know when Christ will return. We don't know the exact specific details, exactly how it will happen. We get some description, but we don't know exactly how it will take place. We don't know exactly what heaven will be like. Will I have a head full of hair? I don't know. Will I even care if I don't have hair? I don't know. We, we don't know the exact specifications of what heaven will be like. I mean, the list goes on and on. This is the not yet. It's that there are things that will happen, things that we are promised as New Testament Christians that have not yet taken place. And here in our passage today, we see Jesus Christ speak of the reality of the already and the not yet. As he really continues this long discourse that started back in verse 17, after the Jewish leaders have confronted him for healing the man by the pool of Bethesda. So remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at that. And then last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus, I mean, clearly states his deity. He says, I am God. You're standing face to face with the God man. Jesus Christ. I mean, there's no getting around the fact that Jesus is claiming to be God in this section of Scripture. I mean, verse 18 of chapter 5 makes that very clear if you look back up to that. John tells us that those that Jesus was talking to, they get angry. And why? Why are they angry? It's because he is making himself, the things that he's saying is making himself equal to God. And then today, as we pick up in verse 25, we see that Jesus further extends his claim of deity while speaking of a present reality with an eternal promise. A present reality with an eternal promise. Or in other words, the already and the not yet. So as we look at this text, I want to make three observations. There's three realities I want us to to grasp here, to see, and I'm going to give us these and then we'll go through them. One, we'll look at the reality that Jesus gives spiritual life now. Jesus gives spiritual life now. This is a present reality. Number two, we'll see that Jesus has the all authority to execute judgment. Jesus has all authority to execute judgment. Number three, we'll see that everyone will be resurrected and judged. Everyone will be resurrected and judged. Let's look at our first reality. Jesus gives spiritual 
life now. We see this in verses 25 through 26. Look there with me. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So here we see this phrase again, this truly, truly. And I I mentioned this before, but this indicates something that is a guaranteed fact. This is something that is true. It is something that is guaranteed to happen. This is also, uh, it signifies something that is new to those that he is speaking to. So this is a new reality that they need to be uh, assured that is happening. And he says here, there is an hour coming. But he doesn't stop there. He says, it is now here. Basically, this communicates the truth that the promises that were spoken of in days past are now a present reality. He says, these things are here. You, You don't have to wait anymore. Now, we all know that there's different things that we wait for, right? We look to, we anticipate. Uh, maybe it was your wedding day. Maybe it was something you, you, you'd wait so far or so long, it seems so far away, and then the day finally arrives, and here it is, and then you're, you're married, and it's a reality. It's something's happened. Maybe it's a birthday. Maybe it's a good meal that you love. Uh, I mean, there's so many things that we can think of that we look to that then they become a present reality. Yesterday we had Zion's birthday and, you know, he was looking forward to it. And, you know, every day he's like, my birthday party's coming up. It's coming. And then it was here. It was a reality. He was celebrate. He celebrated. We enjoyed it. And he had a great time. The same way Jesus says that there is a time that you have heard about. And now that reality is present with us. So this is a current reality. It's not something you have to wait for. It's not something that is to come. It is now here. And what is that reality? Look at the text. He says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. They will hear, they will live. What is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean when he says that the the dead will hear his voice and those that hear will live? What does he mean here? Well, the word dead is translated from a word that means uh, dead in the same way of a spiritually dead. It it would mean in in terms of I am spiritually dead. I, I deny the truth of Scripture. I am dead in my sins. Uh, Paul uses the same language in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, And you were dead, same word, in the trespasses and sins. We're probably familiar with that verse. And he goes on in verse 5, and he says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we made us alive. We're, we're together with Christ. And he goes on to say, By grace you have been saved. And he raises us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here, what Jesus is telling these religious leaders, 
is that spiritual life is being given now. It's something that is happening. He is here, and he is giving spiritual life. This is a present reality that Jesus now gives to those who would hear the voice of God. Notice that Jesus calls himself here the Son of God. He says, I am the Son of God. I mean, he, he, he's not shying away from this reality. He isn't hesitant about the claim. He is assertive and declarative about who he is. We can rest assured that Jesus was certain in his speak, in his speech to others, that he is God himself. And then Jesus really punctuates this reality by saying that just as God the Father has life in himself, or in other words, is the source and author of all life, God is the creator, he gives life, he spoke, things happen, created everything that has ever been, will ever be. Jesus says, just as God has this power, so do I. He says, this is the power that I hold. And why? He says, because the Father has granted it to be this way. Now, we must not fail into a false thinking or misunderstanding that this means that uh, Jesus is somehow inferior to God the Father. Uh, that's not what this is teaching here. We have one God, three persons. They're, they're all equal persons. Uh, one scholar comments, both the Father and the Son have the same life. Both have it in, in themselves, both in the same degree as the one, so to the other, but only with this difference. And here's the difference. The Father from all eternity giveth it, the Son from all eternity receiveth it. Jesus has always been God. There's an equal three-person triune Godhead that we worship. So Jesus is the one who gives spiritual life. I mean, this has been John's message since the beginning of this gospel. If you turn back to chapter 1 uh, with me in the gospel of John, we, we read right here in the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, and he was what? With God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Look at verse 4. In him was what? Life. Life. And the life was the light of men. I mean, Jesus Christ is indeed the one who gives us new life. So what does this mean for us today? Like, how does this apply to us today? Well, first, we need to realize that there is no spiritual life outside of Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no spiritual life outside of Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean. There's many people that claim to be spiritual. They might claim to be spiritual. They may have a claim to some type of spirituality. But without Jesus Christ, that spirituality is dead, is worthless. 
It is pointless. All other religions that make this claim, void of Jesus, all other ideas, schools of thought, philosophies, no matter what you want to insert there, anything that does not rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ to renew the dead man is still dead. That is the truth that we must preach. Second, this teaches us that spiritual life is a reality right now. Like, it's a reality, brothers and sisters. If you have been born again, if you have placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone, there is something that has happened to indicate this, that has changed within us. It's a present reality of our salvation that is fully accessible to each and every one of us today, meaning that when God saved you for his good pleasure, guess what? He saved you for a reason. There's a purpose and plan in your salvation. Yes, on the forefront to give him glory. He saves us for his glory, for his pleasure. But we also read in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, Paul, talking to young Timothy, writes in 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That is something that has happened now, a present reality that we have access to in this day and age. Church, this should affect the way we live. Too often we walk around with this idea like we're just, you know, we're just helpless and we're in a state of no access to God the Father through the Spirit, through the work of Christ on our behalf. We, we allow the weight of the world to just press us down so much, put us in a, a, a chokehold even. When really what we should understand and come to terms with, make it a reality in our mind that we are saved, set apart, and there's a guarantee that we have that is available to us now. I mean, church, are you living in light of this reality? Do you live as one that has new life now? Like, that has it now. Right now, today, are you continue on as nothing has ever changed? Maybe it's continued patterns of sin. Maybe it's continued thought in your, your, your mindset on things. Maybe it's seeking your kingdom first, not the kingdom of God. How are you living today? The spiritual life given by Jesus is a present reality here and now. This is something that has happened. Jesus says it. We better believe it. Brothers and sisters, I encourage us to live in light of this truth. So after Jesus 
tells the Jewish leaders that he is giving spiritual life here and now, he goes on to tell them that he has all authority to execute judgment. Let's look at verse 27 here. He says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now, this is a pretty simple and clear sentence. I mean, it wasn't hard. To, I didn't have to get too creative here. It's a very straightforward point here. Not only has God the Father appointed Jesus to be the giver of life, he has also given him the authority to execute judgment on all life. But we also get this specific grounding for this authority in the fact that Jesus is the Son of Man. Look at that term there. Uh, this title would have been well known to his audience as they recalled the use of this title in Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to ask you to turn there. I want you to see this for yourself. Daniel is in the Old Testament. It's right after Ezekiel. It's before Hosea. Give you a second to turn there. Daniel chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 13. I'm going to uh, read this for us. I want you to see what is happening here. Love the sound of those pages turning. Daniel 7, verse 13, he's speaking here, and he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, that there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given all dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what is happening here is that the prophet Daniel has a vision of a coming Messiah. So there's one that is going to come, and in that vision, he sees one that will come as a son of man. This is an Old Testament phrase that would mean humanity, one that has flesh like man. But then we also see that he's not just in the form of man. He is more than just a man. He's given eternal, everlasting dominion over all creation, his, his kingdom is immovable, unbreakable, says it will last forever. So when Jesus uses this phrase here that he is the son of man that we see in our text, he is referring to the reality that he indeed is the promised son of man that the prophet Daniel spoke of. And, and listen, he's, he's telling them, hey, you're standing face to face with this person. The one that Daniel spoke of, I am he. He's here. This is an extraordinary claim. Furthermore, Christ's oneness with the human race makes him a, a perfect fit to be humanity's judge, right? I mean, it's a, a fit that would be most applicable. The writer of Hebrews shines light on this Wonderful truth, as he writes in Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. 
Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because of Christ's humility, because of his willingness to take on human flesh, to come to earth, to face humanity's struggles, temptations, head on, without sin, he indeed can rightly sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows us. And furthermore, he he then suffers the wrath of God in our place. As if he had done wrong. As if he had sinned. I mean, he is perfectly fitted to be humanity's judge. And let me just put some legs on this and help you to see how this works out in your own life, or at least how it should. The fact that Jesus is the one who executes judgment should bring us, and I'm, I'm talking to Christians here, this should bring us great confidence. It should bring us great joy and confidence here. I have in my mind two different uh, people that would execute judgment, okay? You're, you may think of other people. These are the two that I'm going to give us today. Uh, one is a judge, just simply someone who is a judge. You make a mistake, you speed, you do whatever, uh, you break the law, and you go before the judge, and they're going to do what? They're going to say, hey, this is the law. I must follow the law, and you now must be found guilty based on what the law teaches. That's a human judge, right? See, the human judge cannot stand in place of the guilty. The human judge cannot absorb the punishment for you. The, the human judge cannot uh, go to the, uh, the proper authorities and say, you know what, I, I'm going to change this whole thing around and I'm going to just decide to, to, to take the punishment for this person. Why? Because they don't have the power to do so. But see, Jesus does. Jesus did. He, he takes the punishment that we deserve. And then because of the absorption of the punishment, he declares us then not guilty. He says, not guilty because of my work, not yours. Jesus isn't like earthly kings either. Think of a king in a kingdom, and he's executing judgment here. Uh, we know that um, recently uh, Queen Elizabeth passed away. Now you've got Prince Charles, who is now the king of the uh, British monarchy, the empire there. And let's be honest, right? I mean, Prince Charles really hasn't, uh, I mean, he hasn't really been through a lot of the common folks' problems. He, he's probably lived a, a life of just kind of, a plush, cush life that really, where he can't really understand the needs, the daily struggles of his people. 
But see, Jesus doesn't take his privilege into consideration when he comes and humbles himself as a servant. He says, I will live among my people. I will face the temptations, the struggles. I will be a man carpenter. And then I will be better able to relate to my fellow man. I mean, Jesus had every right to exercise his status in whatever manner he wanted to, right? I mean, he would have been perfectly just to remain in heaven, to never to descend to earth and face the infirmities of humanity. But see, Jesus doesn't do that. And this is the type of Savior you can run to, one that knows you, one that has been face-to-face with the same temptations, the same struggles, the same hardships that you face. When times are rough, when we fail, when we struggle, when the world seems dark and hopeless, when we just can't get it right, guess who we can run to? Jesus. Every time, every single time, we have a Savior that not only says, I'm the judge, I am the one who knows exactly what you are going through, and I have paid the ultimate price so that you don't ever have to. What a Savior. What a promise that we have. Brothers and sisters, run to Christ. Run to Christ. He is the perfect judge who has been given all authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus then brings, finally, in our third reality here, a most important reality to our attention. After asserting that he is the judge, we see in verses 28 through 29 we see that everyone will be resurrected and will be judged. So he states this fact that I am the one that will execute judgment. And, and he says, and so let me remind you that everyone will be judged. Look at verses 28 and 29 with me. It says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So apparently here, Jesus' listeners were astonished by what has been said. Because Jesus says, don't marvel at this. Don't marvel at this. This is nothing. I mean, he's spoken of his uh, the ability to give spiritual life. He's spoken of his authority to execute judgment. But Jesus says, this isn't it. You haven't even heard it all. There is more to come. Now, he says here that there is an hour coming. Notice he doesn't say is now here like he did earlier in verse 25. He said this is, is coming. It's, it's not here Yet, it's a future reality. This is the part of the not yet I spoke of earlier. So here we have this promise that has not yet happened, but is going to happen. Why? Because Jesus said it's going to happen. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God. 
So he says, this is going to happen. Jesus says there's a time coming when everyone will be resurrected. Notice the language here. This is all who are in the tombs. I mean, everyone who has ever lived and everyone who ever dies. Everyone. Everyone will be resurrected. Sometimes we fail to remember that. It's not just the saved. It's not just the unsaved. We see that everyone will respond to the voice of Christ and will will come out of the grave. They will all be resurrected. But then we see that there are two categories that they will be placed into. There's two different categories. So everyone will be raised, and they'll be placed into two categories. What are these categories? First, we see those that have done good to the resurrection of life. Now, this doesn't mean that someone does good and gets saved. They don't work their way to salvation. He's not saying that people that have been saved for eternal life or are done so because they've done good works. They've earned their way to this promise. That would be contrary to countless numbers of other passages in the Bible. The Bible teaches that the ground of a sinner's salvation is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross by which they are then saved by faith in that finished work. There's nothing that we can do to obtain a right standing with God. But the Bible also teaches that good works accompany true saving faith. There are good works that accompany saving faith. This is the message of James 2.17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Because it's dead. There's no faith without good works. Uh, Ephesians 2 that we read earlier. What does it say we're created for? Good works. That we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. There's something now that happens that changes in believers. So Jesus is saying here, those who show themselves to be genuine believers by displaying good works are those that will be raised to a life of eternal joy. Because they're the ones that are going to be raised to life. There's going to be joy that is found here. There's abundant life for those who believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the promise, brothers and sisters, that we wait for. We, we wait for this. This is something that we can be guaranteed of. I mean, there's a lot of good things in this life, isn't it? I mean, and God wants us to enjoy those things. There's many things that we can all think of. But brothers and sisters, the best of this life is nothing compared to the eternal pleasures that Christians will experience with Jesus. Amen? I mean, that is a a beautiful reality. This is Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 19, where he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people 
the most to be pitied. Like, if we just hope in the best of this world, our best life now, then we are to be pitied. It's not about that. The best of this is only a glimpse of what's to come. It's like a a drop in the ocean of heaven. Spend an eternity with our Savior, face-to-face, perfected with him and with each other. This is the eternal promise for those that experience the current reality of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. He says those that hear Jesus' voice and are, are given spiritual life, They're given new life. They're regenerated. They're born again. We have this promise to guarantee. Church, we must put our hope here. I mean, what hope we should have, what confidence we should have, what lives we should live knowing that this is our promise. I mean, we're going to know we will know our Savior's face. We will see him glorified, perfected, perfection ourselves. Praise be to God for this wonderful promise and his wonderful plan of salvation. But we also see there's another category for those who are resurrected that don't have this new life. We read the other category. He says, Those who have done evil be raised to the resurrection of judgment. So here Jesus says that those that do not display the fruit of saving faith will be raised to, in reality, of eternal judgment. And this is a staggering and sobering reminder that there is a real and present reality that each person who denies Jesus Christ will be judged accordingly. Will be judged. They'll be judged for their works, for their denial of Christ, their denial of the gospel, their rejection, their hard-heartedness, their pride, their arrogance, that they can figure it out and they don't need anyone intervening. Continue to chase the American dream while casting aside the words of Scripture. There will be judgment. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 gives us a clear description of what is happening here. I'll read this for us. Verse 31 says, when the Son of Man, remember the term we spoke of earlier, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It says, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You probably have read this before. And he says here in verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is Christians. 
These are those that have that promise, this kingdom that we are promised as his people, where Jesus reigns and rules supreme for all eternity. And then in verse 41, we read of non-Christians. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. And then he goes on to talk about works not done in verses 42 through 45. They, remember, they claim to do these good works. And he says, no, you didn't do this for me. You did this for self. It wasn't about me. And he says in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, the righteous to eternal life. The reality is that those that reject Christ now will be rejected by Christ forever. And this is something that everyone in this room needs to reconcile in their minds. Something that everyone in the world must resolve. See, Jesus Christ has all authority to execute this eternal judgment because he is God. And those that reject this reality now will have to face the reality forever. And it is eternal judgment, eternal suffering. See, it is his work that saves us, not ours. And it is his word that will judge us, not ours. Not man's, not anything that we can do, not our ideas. It is Jesus who will say whose are his. Brothers and sisters, responding to this reality is something that everyone must do. And we must put the hope of the gospel in front of those that do not know the truth of the gospel. What? You can't just give them the bad news without giving them the hope that there is a man who came to save the lost. And if you would place your faith in him, trust in his finished work on your behalf, he will save you, redeem you. And you too can have the promises that are to come. Church, we must proclaim that there is hope. We must proclaim that the judge is also the Savior. He's provided a way. He's given us a way to move from a resurrection of judgment to a resurrection of life. So those that are saved, rejoice. Rejoice in this reality as you look forward to the promised Reality that is true for all who have been given new life. The present realities that lead to eternal promises, and my hope today is that each and every person under the sound of my voice knows that they are safe and secure in the one who loves them, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness that you would 
provide a Savior to live the life that we could not live, but to then die the death that we deserve. Father, will we be a people that would proclaim that truth, would live different, would talk different, would share the love of Christ with those around us for their good and for your glory. May we remember that Jesus is the only access to God. It is through him we are saved, through him alone. May we live with that reality. May we proclaim that reality. May it change us daily as we grow in Christ's likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.